that I, and I tell students, if I can't show you how whatever the concept is doesn't fit to your job, call me out on it because I believe I should do that. I was a theory-based superintendent, but I converted it all to practical language people could understand. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it is all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. Your host is Peter Margaritas, the man whose name is pronounced like a cocktail, but spelled like an inflammation. Peter is the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of his business, The Accidental Accountant. Peter's goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 76. And today my guest is Dr. David Brobeck, the problem-solving professor, who is a professional speaker and a professor of graduate education at Walsh University in North Canton, Ohio. Raised in the shadows of western Pennsylvania steel mills, he holds a bachelor's from California Lutheran University and a master's and a doctorate from Kent State University. His current academic focus is researching various means to enhancing teaching and learning based on neuroscience. Regardless of what endeavor, David believes learning should be fun. Let's get to the interview and learn about the tips and techniques on how we can make learning fun in order to increase the audience member retention rate. However, a quick note. During the interview, David refers to the QRST method, and this stands for question, reflect, share, and then team means share with the group. So with that being said, let's get to the interview. David, thank you so very much for being a guest on my podcast. I am so excited and looking forward to our conversation today. Peter, it's my honor to be here. David, we go back uh, as members of the National Speakers Association, but I remember the first time I saw you, I, I was in Philadelphia at the National Speakers Association Annual Convention, and I sat in on your breakout session on whole brain teaching techniques, which really opened my eyes to this big aha moment about there's there's a lot more to the classroom than just lecturing. And, and I, I always kind of had a feel for that in my, in my teaching at, at Ohio Dominican, but you did some things in a very different way. And, and I, if I remember correctly, you have this belief, as I do, that learning should be fun. Well, I have a slide in every presentation I do that... Um... If you're not a fun person, you may hate the session. <laughs> then I explain to them, you might want to fake it because the brain can't tell the difference between fake fun and real fun. But uh, we do know that people learn more when there's humor involved. And it has to do with hormone release and some other things in the brain function. So you're a professor at Walsh University. How did you find this as your passion, as your, as your research? Well, I started on early when I shifted from K-12. I was a 35-year veteran of teaching English for 17 years. I was a middle school principal. I was a school superintendent in Ohio. Um, and then I was hired by Walsh to teach graduate school. Um, one of my grad students, I used to challenge them in their capstone course to come up with something that I might not know about and surprise me. And she did a presentation on something called whole brain teaching. 
I went on and saw a couple of videos, and I was fascinated because it reminded me of two areas, um, coaching, where coaches often will use different callback and chant techniques, and uh, sometimes in church. And churches will often use something where there's an audience response, whether it's, say, amen or um, some sort of liturgy where things are repeated. So the school sent me to Louisiana College for the National Brain Conference that summer. I met Chris Biffle, the California professor who invented these techniques, and then we started to apply it to the classes we're teaching because it works, which opened up the door for me to then continue to study the brain and learning. Well, I will have to say that I've become more fascinated with the, with the brain, and you were in the session when John Molidar came to our NSA chapter meeting and was talking about the brain and how it functions, and obviously you're well-versed, and this was my first indoctrination into it, really, uh, from an audience perspective and understanding what that audience, how that audience's brains work, and I've become so, so fascinated with this that I've I've read the book Brain Rules by John Medina, and I'm, 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 and part of the reason I want to interview you is, is, is to learn more about how an audience member, because as anytime we present anything, we're transferring knowledge, we're transferring information. And in my world of accounting, data is pretty boring. And if they're not looking at the slides, they're reading their email, and but we just... We're not engaging that audience member's brain and, and, and helping with that level of retention. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to your thoughts, your techniques that you use to help increase retention in that audience member, as well as keeping them engaged. Um, there are some consistencies about the human brain that don't change from uh, human being to human being. We're hardwired for certain things. Every baby is born knowing how to nurse. Uh, the police catch people because human beings have patterns of behavior that cause them to do certain things. All that being said, we also have a lot of studies been over the time. I happen to study the psychometric tool emergenetics. Many people know Myers-Briggs or the DISC system. And even the Native Americans used to look at the human brain as having four types of thinking preferences. So when we understand that and we're talking to an audience, they may be looking at their phone, which is a mistake for one reason, because the human brain cannot multitask. We, we hear the, well, they're really good at multitasking. Well, they tend to be better at task shifting, not multitasking. And the best example of that is if somebody's on the telephone talking when they're driving and suddenly an ice storm comes up and the car swerves, they stop talking because now the brain is out of automatic mode and is having to, to concentrate on being able to control the car. So we have certain automatic things, and that's why people think, well, yeah, I can do two things at once. Well, you can, but you can only do it in certain circumstances. So when you talk about an audience and you're trying to engage them, then we need to understand there are lots of different types of thinkers out there. And I'm not talking about learning preferences. I'm talking thinking preferences. So how can I tap into that so that I can make sure that I can touch each audience member? And that becomes then the challenge of the presenter. So how do you how would you assess an audience? I mean, when I when I for any speaking engagement, I try to get an idea who who's in my audience, the, the composition of it. And most of my most of my presentations are to accountants, CPAs. So I have an idea. So how should I be structuring that conversation? I like to call it a conversation versus a presentation in order to increase that level of retention uh, for that type of audience member. 
Well, first of all, we know that um, the greatest professional speakers out there, the Zig Ziglers and the Lou Hecklers and these people that um, are fabulous storytellers, Jeannie Robertson comes to mind, they all use humor and ways to engage the brain, and people remember story better than they remember a list of facts. But most of us don't have that skill set. So what we need to do is remember that we have to have a structure there because people expect that. They want to know where we're going, and there has to be a way of doing that. If we present facts, when I was at the session that I did at uh, NSA in Philadelphia in 2013, I did hand out a sheet that said brain facts. I did not list the sources on it. I just listed the facts, and I had one person come and say, well, this has no value if there are no sources. Well, I know that person has an interest in analytical information that I needed to go back and provide data. I got his email address. I went back, and I gave the source for every site on the handout, and I sent it to him. Um, we know people in there like to engage with each other. We know there are some people who are not. So how can we provide a, an avenue that we can stop at some point in time and let people talk to each other? Um, the human in the classroom, for example, we know that allowing students, or in this case an audience, to talk to each other is one of the ways the human brain processes information, sorts it, and determines that it's meaningful. Because when we switch the speaking function, suddenly we're at a different level. And then finally, the big picture. You have people in there that are highly conceptual and want to have a vision, and somehow you you touch on that as well. So if we're we're, we're organized, we're making sure we support our our information with backup. If we give people a chance to interact and we give them a big picture, we pretty much touched on the major components of each person in the room. Wow. Okay, I I, I get that. But but with the why do something? You you brought up laughter, and um, I I tell the story of of how I got into the tax side of accounting versus the auditing side of accounting, and it came with my graduate program because my tax professor made me laugh. My tax professor tried to make tax accounting fun, while my auditing professor was just boring us to death with all these facts, and it wasn't fun. Uh, what is it in the brain that when we laugh or, or some some emotionally charged event, what is it that happens at that point in time? Well, if you were to interlock your fingers to the inside and open it up and wiggle them, that's how I demonstrate this is the inner working of the limbic system of the brain. The limbic system is an emotional area. Uh, there's a professor at Harvard University, Amy Cuddy, who has one of the most watched ever TED Talks. She talks about endorphins and cortisol being released from the brain. Laughter releases endorphins. Um, I had a student just quote the movie Legally Blonde because the attorney says, well, she couldn't have killed him because she exercises and exercise releases endorphins and happy people don't do bad crimes. Same concept. When you laugh, you're releasing these endorphins. We learn more when we have endorphins being released in our brain. Conversely, cortisol is released when we need to protect ourselves. So a stressful classroom that you fear failure or you fear the professor or it's boring you to death can actually cause the brain to start to protect itself, and then you don't learn as much. So it's the limbic system that causes the reason that laughter, you liked it better, and it also why you remembered more. Okay, so cortisol, it, 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 it's a defense mechanism? Cortisol is a hormone. It's a hormone, yeah, but it, it, it makes a... Yeah, so in the Cuddy study, what she did, they, they took body language and they compared the Wonder Woman or, and pose with hands on hips right. or the victory pose with hands overhead and signaling a touchdown. 
And then they had people cross their arms, cross their legs, and sit. And for two minutes, and they were observed. And they actually gave off energy that was not as positive. People who were crossing their arms were not viewed as quality candidates as those who stood in power poses. Which all goes back to you can control the release of hormones in your body, which is one of the reasons I go back to if you can't, if you don't think it's funny, pretend. Because the brain doesn't know the difference between fake laughter and fake humor and fake enjoyment and real enjoyment, a la nightmares and happy dreams. Okay. So, if obviously, if I, if I want the class to be more engaged, I want them to, re, to release the... Um... Endorphins. Thank you. Endorphins. What does does dopamine come into this at all? Yeah, it's a, it's the same type of thing. When you get you get it's a positive hormone. I mean, they had a a study that they did. Um, they showed people scary faces, and then they had them uh, sniff oxy, oxytocin, which simulates um, social interaction and support from other people, relational. And they found that the happy the scary faces didn't frighten them anymore once the human brain had a chance to socialize with another brain. Our brains are highly social. Human beings like to socialize. If it's, uh, it's sometimes when you know you sense something from a family member. Women seem to know what each other's thinking. Uh, college roommates will often start to menstruate at the same time. I have four daughters. That is a common thing at my house. If they're all living together, they'll all go in, their bodies will go in the same cycle. That's all brain-based. And um, you know, I don't know why that was done that way or how or what, but it is factual that those things happen. So we have the ability in a classroom is to try to enhance some of that uh, uh, hormone release uh, in our audience if we know the positive effect it will have. And I would assume that if we if we find ourselves going down the path that we can see that the defensiveness, the, the protectiveness, that we need to change our delivery method in order to help increase learning? Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Again, you just see the, the greatest speakers out there do all these things. They have emotional connection to the audience. They they have a way of, you know, maybe the audience turns and talks to each other. You mentioned John Molitor. I felt validating he was there because what I do is different, and a lot of people don't do that. And I'm and trying to convince a classroom teacher or college professor to try these things is much more difficult, actually, than trying to convince a professional speaker to do it. But um, it does work. I've given the example of, if you ever listened to Martin Luther King Jr. speak, he was very much a whole brain speaker because he would say things and the audience would start repeating with him. He'd have them repeat things he said. Uh, Some people say, well, that was the preaching style. Well, it might be. But it's still a speaking style that is effective at getting people to remember what you're talking about. So that also goes with repetition as well. And um, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I mean, 2013 was a long time ago, but I was in your class. And I know I, I, our, my colleague, Jennifer Elder, really took a lot of what you did and was applying it in the classroom. Uh, I tried some things, and I'm trying to remember what were some of those techniques that you, you taught that day. Well, one of the things that that I do is, um, for example, um, we use gestures in there, taking a a make a gesture up that seems to fit. When I teach uh, the school, I teach a legal and ethical class. When I teach the 14th Amendment, which is the due process amendment, I take a gesture, which I touch my heart, and I say, life, I raise my hands as if I'm holding a torch and say, liberty, 
then I put my hands together and I have my thumbs chase each other in pursuit of happiness. I have the students repeat that about three times, and I pretty much now at the end of any at the end of the semester they'll all remember exactly what that is. And the symbol, the gesture I use for the Fourteenth Amendment, is my hands going back and forth as if they're tipping scales. And that's one of the things we did. I also um, I probably I don't remember exactly, but I probably taught something that I call QRST, where I asked a question. I asked the audience to think about the question for a certain amount of time. I'm going to say anywhere from 10 to 30 seconds, 30 seconds is long. I then asked them to share information with one other member while the person sat. I told them exactly how much time I would give them to talk, which maybe is 30 seconds. I then used a neurotransmitter break called an off switch, where I say switch, and then the audience, you can ham it up by reaching up with this guy like you're pulling down a big switch, and you say, ah, switch. Then the other person has the exact same amount of time. Then we process out with that. Now, the purpose behind that from the, the brain and learning point, and I did this actually, I know what you do. I had a room full of government finance workers at their national convention a couple of years ago. But the idea is by giving a time frame, we're going to touch everybody. First of all, reflective learners need time to think. Just because somebody's a great Jeopardy player doesn't mean they're the smartest person in the room. It means they can respond quickly. Many brilliant people process and need time, so I give them time to think. They get equal amounts of time to talk, and we do that because the introverted learner likes to know exactly what the time frame is, and so does the structured person. And oftentimes in a group setting, one person starts to talk and doesn't stop when they're asked to switch. The neurotransmitter break is kind of like the phone ringing, right, as you're getting ready to deliver the punchline of a good joke. And um, equal time means that then they can process out. I'll do another thing, or if I call in the audience, I will say, would you please tell me what your partner said, rather than asking a person to volunteer. That's safer for people. But here's the real key. Sometimes people don't volunteer. I was working with a group of pharmaceutical sales rep last year, and no one ever asked to tell me what they said or their partner said, but it doesn't matter because the brain processes they don't necessarily have to tell anyone. They don't have to tell you. They just need to tell somebody else. So if you have if you have an audience share and you say, would somebody like to tell me what your partner said or would you like to tell me your ideas and no one volunteers, move on because their brain's already done the work. Many people have no need to tell you what everybody's thinking or what somebody else is thinking. They don't need to share it with the groom, which means if you're in an audience of a 1,000 where you can't call on people, you don't have to. Simply give somebody a chance to, you know, you, if you lectured for 10 minutes, if you talk, you said, you know, turn to your partner and tell your partner something, can we get some think, some real incredible thing you've been thinking about for the last first 10 minutes. Give them time to think about it. They sort it, give them 30 seconds, 30. So in the course of two minutes, you've done a break where each person's had a chance to express something. I know, and they're always talking about takeaways at the speaker and make an action plan. But frankly, if you don't give people a chance to talk, that which you said early, and if they're writing down notes, they're not listening because you can't do both. Right. So the thing that caught me on, on the earlier story was you were with a group of pharmaceutical reps and nobody said anything, which to yeah, me when I said, would you like me. to share what the what you'd like to like to share what your partner said or you said? They were quiet. Well, I already had a breakdown of the group, so I knew that the group as a whole was introverted at about 75 people, 75 percent of the people in a room of 30. There was only one actual extrovert identified in the whole room. 
So I knew they were going to be reluctant, and that's okay. Because when I actually had them write down some things, <laughs> then they wrote it down, and they wrote down stuff that was brilliant and what they got from it. Um, but if you, we study Susan Cain, who wrote a book called Quiet. If we try to force an introvert into speaking, we're crashing them. So if they want to speak, they can. If they don't, that's okay, too. Because I was going to say, I, I, the, the pharmaceutical sales reps that I know can't stop talking. So that's what kind of threw me for a loop there. <laughs> well, this group, I think they were they process it. They're, they're on the inside. They're not in the field. Oh, okay. They yeah. work for the company. They're the ones that process the stuff. Maybe a sales rep was, the bad, was a bad term. But they are the ones that make sure everything's in line and they get the information that needs to be gotten to the, the people in the field and make sure the accounts are done right and whatever they're processing done correctly. Uh, they're the financial backbone of the company. Uh, that, 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 no, no, that makes sense. I, 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 I get that. But I do, and you brought this up, you said, you know, after 10 minutes, have them do some type of exercise, have them converse, have them write things down, have them reflect. I do remember that being in your session, and I do try to do that. I find myself at times forgetting in, in full transparency, but it might be 20, 20 minutes later, and I'll have them do a little exercise where they're conversing with one another and they're asked to reflect and think about something. Because I guess it goes to your point, if we continue, if we take that old lecture style and, and, and we're just talking at that audience and not having them engage with each other, it's just boring data. It's just that it's not connecting with them. It's, 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 it creates this boredom. Correct. Yeah, and the other part, you don't know if they're getting it or not. And you can watch, you know, I've had people stand and do the share. Can you stand and share? And I, I tell them at the beginning, I know some of you won't be comfortable with this. I hope you're sitting by somebody you like. And if you don't want, if you don't have a partner, uh, I would ask that during the share, say out loud what you've been learning. Even if it's quietly, say it out loud. Just don't sit and think about nothing. We know that works, too. There's a process in the brain that when you verbally say something, you're activating different parts. Uh, people listening might be interested. There's a, there's a uh, YouTube video called The Glass Brain Project. It's out of the University of California in San Francisco. The researcher, it's an MEG helmet that reads brainwave activity, and he had his wife blink her eyes and open and close one hand. They recreated it into showing exactly how much of the brain fires on those two simple activities. It's a powerful, the brain is a powerful thing. It's, it's not a muscle, but the neurons allow us to grow and have things happen. I just had a cousin, he's 31 years old, who had brain surgery. We're waiting for the pathology report, but when he's re in his recovery, he's not permitted to multitask. If he's watching television, no one's allowed to talk to him. If, he's, if you want to talk to him, you have to turn the television off. If he wants to talk to people, he has to be either lying down or sitting. If he gets up to walk, he's not allowed to talk or watch television. So all of this is to minimize how much is going on because the brain does so many things on simple activities. Wow. I would have never thought that with a brain injury. And, and, and well, let me ask this question. Someone, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer that we cannot multitask. but. Someone once said, and they were a drummer and in a band, and said that you can only multitask when you're using both hemispheres of the brain versus one hemisphere. And he equated to when he would play the drums. 
Is that is he just blowing well, some smoke? The, at me? the old thing about we we only use ten percent of our brains that is false. Roger Speary was the researcher who first started talking hemisphere of the brain. You know, we have you know words and things form on this left side and you know artistic on the right side. Um, actually, the I just got a new slide at the Brain Summit and the neural pathways and lateralization. The corpus callosum is the part of the brain in the center that connects the two halves, which, by the way, bad news for you and me is that um, the corpus callosum on, on men is smaller than that of a female brain, oh. which does account for the reason that women sometimes can task shift more easily than men can. But um, no, he, he wasn't doing it on one side of the brain. When he was playing the drums, when he was learning the new piece, new thing, he had to learn a new, new tap rhythm, a new whatever it was going to be. My guess is he didn't do a lot of talking to people. Then once he got the piece down, then it was different. Um, when I was first learning to play the guitar, as soon as I would try to sing a note, my hands would stop. Hmm. I was like, my hands just stopped. Well, I was functionally trying to do two thinking processes simultaneously. Once I learned the piece on the guitar well enough to play it, then the playing part became the automatic, and the singing part became something I had to work out. Oh, okay. I get that. Tap your head and tap your head, rub your stomach simultaneously. Little kids have a hard time doing that. Right. But it's, yeah, his, whatever he was doing with the drums, when he was actually trying to learn a brand new piece, then it took one, I doubt seriously he was multi, he was multitasking. Because I watched a music teacher one time talk to the kids about doing stomp. He played one set, one piece on his left hand, another piece on his right hand. His foot was a third group, and he talked to them during the entire thing. Wow. And I said, how did you have three parts of your, four parts of your body going simultaneously? He said, practice. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Looking back on it, it's exactly what it was. Yeah, he 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 mastered one piece and then... Studied the other piece. Yeah. You know, he grew up in a, he was an African American who grew up in a church that everything was done by ear and you had to learn to do things that way or that wasn't going to happen. And he went on to, he was actually director of bands at Howard University for a while. And he's a jazz musician and all those things come together. But yeah, five, four different things happening simultaneously, one person. Wow, that's, that's pretty incredible. And I have shared with you that I'm in the process of writing a book. Uh, with a working title right now, financial storytelling. I'm having. I'm. I'm trying to find a way in this book uh, to help those who tend to teach more technical topics, like accounting or taxation or or even architecture or engineering or and and getting them away from the way we learned many years ago to a more engaging type of a classroom. And the techniques that you're, you know, have talked about should go a long way in that development. But I, I've always found that we learn from what we see. And when I first started teaching, uh, I learned from my previous teachers and, and their, their methods. And it wasn't really till I joined the National Speakers Association and saw different styles and techniques that were completely opposite, then my 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 world opened up to a new way of of delivering information. How does that how do you get that across to somebody who has been doing something over a number of years, say 10, 15 years a a a, a, a way 
and you show them that they can be more effective in the classroom if they apply some techniques, but they're reluctant to do so. Is it because of the risk or because of the fear or just because of the hard work? Well, the research on it says that people are comfortable in the status quo. The reason that you, for example, professional speakers is because their income is based on their ability to attract audiences to hire them. So it's not as risky for them to try a technique if, you know, you, you saw Chad Hymas yesterday and there's certain things he does that are highly engaging. And you know, how does he do that? We've seen Jeannie Robertson and how she used a story. And I remember Jeannie said that she got her storytelling technique from the Andy Griffith Show. Barney Fife specifically, <laughs> and using using physical movement the way that Barney Fife did. And I remember going watching her and then going back and watched the old Andy Griffith show. So, doggone it, there it is. So, there's that element to it. But, you know, I, I'm looking at, uh, I mean, I had a professor ask, you know, about getting a higher rating on his feedback form for students. So, when, when I sat down, we did an analysis of how he teaches. It was 100% lecture. Um, he started at the beginning of the class period, and he lectured till the end. And the technique I taught him was every eight minutes, stop and do that QRST, have the students talk to each other, check for understanding, because if they're not getting what you gave them in the eight minutes, you got to reteach it. And rather than finding out on the test exam on Friday or the following Thursday, whatever day it is, you have a chance to make the assessment then. So in teaching, we call it a a formative assessment, or somehow we try to figure out whether they're getting it or not. That's one of the reasons it's important. And what you're saying, too, is if people understand the power of the story, I teach school law. Now, that could be a boring class. When I had it, we had to memorize laws. Mm -hmm. But I teach it based on experience as a school superintendent and teacher, and I tell stories of people who messed up. And the student's like, well, it can't possibly be true. Yeah, well, can't make this stuff up. You know, and I haven't gone out and look up court cases of really weird things that have happened, and they're dumbfounded by, you know, it's like social media. And how dumb can you be thinking, I can text what I want, nobody's going to know. No, you're creating an international permanent record. So it's the same thing, what you're asking, why would people, why don't they change? And reason, if they're still getting an income, would taking the change risk losing any income, and they worry, or are they just comfortable, and they don't have to do anything new, and that makes it easier. As you were describing and talking about this, um, my son, who's 17 and waited and finally got his learner's permit, we put him in um, top driver. So he had to like have 24 hours of in-class classroom, and then we're going to do the eight hours of, of driving. And I took him his first day of class, and the, the room was on a second floor of building, and it was the old individual desks, like you see in an elementary school or something. The room was beige, and it just—I mean, just didn't have this feel for it. I went, "Oh my god, this teenage, my son's going to get thrown out of class, or he's just going to be bored and not remember anything." And when I picked him up, I said, "So how was it?" And he went, "It wasn't that bad, Dad," which shocked me for one, and two, I said, "Why wasn't it bad?" Well, because he told us stories the whole time. And I went, what do you mean, Steve, he told you stories the whole time? Well, instead of like talking out of the book, you know, there was a concept or there was something that, but he would tell these real life stories that kept their attention. He had to go through six weeks of this driving school on a Sunday from one to four to one to about five o'clock and never complained once about going 
and always left remembering. And the, to the to the power of story, even at you know, like a driving school. The other thing that happens with story is to go back to neurons. We have mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are why when you watch a movie, you cry, even though it's two dimensional. It's being done by actors. We cry or laugh in a movie because we have these neurons that fire when we empathize with other people and we see other things going on. So when people are hearing stories, they're also equating them to their own life because they have had things that have happened to them. And they climb inside that story with the storyteller if they're good. And they start to live with that person. So we remember experiences better when we've had them. And, you know, and some stories are so powerful that we never forget them um, for whatever reason. You know, it's a, sometimes there's just something that's incredibly powerful, like people remembering where they were when 9-11 happened. Or I remember where I was. I'm old enough that I was in school when John Kennedy was assassinated. And my brother was graduating college with a... We get up in the morning, go to the store, and we heard that Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated. I remember exactly where we were in all three of those events. Yeah, I, I use that example as it relates to 9-11, because I can tell you exactly where I was, what was happening almost vividly through that whole process of the Stephen Covey uh, event uh, that Franklin University was sponsoring. And I walked out of the room, used the restroom, and there was these people hovering around this small portable TV with antennas. And I go, what are you watching? They said, well, it looks like a plane hit the World Trade Center, but didn't really, you know, and I was thinking like a little Cessna. And then as I was coming back, more and more people started gathering around and people started going into the bar and they had the TV on. And I, I can vividly see that. And I can remember walking in back into the to the auditorium and Covey's getting the news of what's going on and the news is starting to travel. And I, you know, so that's what, 17 years ago, and I can still vividly see everything from that day and probably a few days after that. Well, and the, yes, and those, those are events and that triggers certain things in our brain. And that's why a really well-placed good story when you're teaching has such a powerful impact. We're converting like many colleges. I have to teach online now. And what students tell me, because I will sometimes run hybrid where they come to class now and then, is that. Man, if you come to class, they'll go on the online. I do a Zoom session and say, you're really missing a story. Or will you tell that story about? Mm. Uh, and it's different talking to a computer than it is telling a story to a live audience. Right. And if we could, and if we could do more storytelling to live audiences when we have that opportunity, uh, that, that level of retention does increase. Sure. And even in accounting, let's see, if you're out doing, whether it's accounting, um, auditing, or taxation, when you start telling stories of some idiotic thing a person did to get in trouble, people hear that. <laughs> yeah. Why would, you know, why would somebody have done that? Why did that treasurer think you could not have to file these reports or whatever it might be? And you, you talk about investigations and here's how to keep yourself out of trouble. I mean, a, a good story is much better than, oh, let me hear the factual data of how you need to file a such-and-such form. Well, I, I wrote an ethics course that uh, I've, I've delivered this year. And the feedback that I've gotten from, because I use real-life examples. I talk about I talk about Enron. I talk about a company like Theranos. I, I talk about Wells Fargo and, and some recent events. And the majority have said something along those lines. I love it that you're using real-world examples than just theory that's out there because it is part of storytelling, and they they tend to stay awake, and my my my, my evaluation scores keep going up. 
Correct. And it's the same thing that I try to do with when I'm teaching a graduate class. That I, and I tell students, if I can't show you how whatever the concept is doesn't fit to your job, call me out on it because I believe I should do that. I was a theory-based superintendent, but I converted it all to practical language people could understand. So what type of organizations do you consult with? I mean, who, who bring you in to, to study this or get this information? Mostly I work with schools at the K-12 level. Um, I worked with one pharmacy group. I've, I've done talks to rotaries and other places. Um, it's, it's interesting with my background because I was considered a business superintendent um, for ability to save and save money and you know, keep people's health care from locking out of business. But that doesn't always translate into working with business. So I'm okay with that. I can help teachers at all levels better understand how to interpret a what a student's going through. I teach brain theory to, I'm working with two studies right now at Walsh, one in our doctor physical therapy program, and we have a study going on with a professor who used to have, who used to have the highest F rate on campus. <laughs> and he was the, but he brought me in and I did some coaching of him, his students. We applied some of the tools that, that are brain-based. And the first time he did it, the lowest grade he had was 1D. Everybody else was higher than that. Wow. Which I think also um, helped him get tenure. And we're now back in doing another cohort in his class to see, you know, just get him thinking about it because our preferences often drive us to think other people feel the way we do. But if I can understand where a person's coming from, not their learning preference necessarily, but how they think about things. Now, the need of a student to or an audience member to have a tight outline, know you know exactly when the time's going to be. That's important to some people, but for somebody who's a visionary, they might think you're putting handcuffs on them. So I need to I need to do both of those things somehow to get to both groups. So that's what I, I do. I, I do teach that to people, and that's what I did with the pharmacy group I worked with. You know how to work with their colleagues because they had two things they had going that was hurting them from a business standpoint. 87% of the people in the organization had a structural preference. They just wanted to hit deadlines and get it over with. And they didn't have enough conceptual thinkers. And then they were quiet, so they never brought something up. The point being, in a, in a business, if they had a deadline of Friday, they liked finishing it on Monday, but then wouldn't consider new information at all. And I said, well, what's the critical point? And somebody said, well, Thursday. And I said, okay. So somebody comes up with an idea on Wednesday, you look at it, and they said, not if we're done. <laughs> which then became the challenge of the organization. It's so, so you're hurting yourselves. You're losing money. Well, for them, you know, they were a profit share organization. It's like, what do you mean we're losing money? Then we were able to work through that. But there comes a time when you listen to somebody who is flexible to change because it could help you. And always being done first is not necessarily the best thing that's out there. Sometimes being done first hurts you because you don't consider something new that comes along could help you. That's uh, that very well said. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, and before I forget to ask, how can people, if, if, if somebody in my audience wants to contact you, what's the best way that they can contact you? I'm, have a, I'm on the Ohio, uh, NSA Ohio website. My email is pretty easy. It's docbrobeck at gmail.com, D-O-C, Brobeck. But, and I'm, I'm always willing to talk to people about how this works and uh, I love it. It's what my research work is, and I've been committed to helping whoever it is learn and retain more information my whole life. This is my 43rd year 
of teaching, and I've been speaking professionally for 12 years. It all ties together. I, I see myself as a teacher who speaks. I used you as an example yesterday about your evaluations and how being a member of NSA and seeing these different things really have helped you in the classroom to a, um, a VIP member yesterday and questioning, uh, would this help me at work and the stuff that they do? And Well, yeah, there's a, oh, his, I can't remember his last name. First name was Joel. He talked about success comes in, comes in cans. And he had, he was old school. He was showing how he used transparencies and an overhead projector. Didn't use PowerPoint. But he had a structure that he, how he laid out his events. Mm -hmm. I've used that, I use that as a classroom teacher. I've used that in every presentation I've done, whether it's an NSA type presentation or I'm speaking to an audience of college professors. I go right down through that thing, exactly how he taught it. And when I got hired at Wallace, they said that might have been the most structured demo lesson we've ever seen. Well, that all came off NSA Ohio. Wow. I, how long ago was that? Do you remember? Well, we were at the Crown Plaza oh. in, in Columbus, so it's been a while. It's, it's, it's been a while. Because I think we tried to look up his name. I uh, talked to somebody within Chapter Men and see if we can find that information. Um, you know, and he was and he was older then because I I turned sixty four this year, and um, I just don't remember. I, I can't remember his name. Shame on me. That's... Might be because I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, you don't look sixty four, my friend. You, you, if I hope to look as good as you do when I'm sixty four. <laughs> Uh, I actually, I, I tell people I have a body of an 80-year-old and a mind of a 35-year-old, so <laughs> that gives you some idea. Joe, Joe Weldon is his name. I just looked it up. Joe Weldon, W-E-L-D-O-N. He's a keynote speaker, and his, his line of success comes in cans. Okay, cool. I'm glad you did that. Thank you so very much. David, thank you again for taking time. I, I'm fascinated by... Our conversation, which makes me want to go learn, continue to learn more and more about how the brain interacts and ways that we can engage that classroom. I think in today's day and age, it's a must that we begin moving in this direction. And I can't thank you enough, my friend. You're welcome, Peter. I would like to thank David again for spending time on this episode talking about the brain and how we can make learning fun and engaging. Before I close, I'd like to talk about the first five episodes of this podcast that are qualified for CPE self-study credit under the NASBA category of personal development. Those interviews are with Clark Price, who's a retired CEO of the Ohio Society of CPAs, Mike Scorantino, who is the author of the book Gratitude Marketing, Tom Hood, who is the CEO of the Maryland Association of CPAs, Ed Mendelwitz, who's the partner in the accounting firm of Witham, Smith & Brown, and Carl Oryx, who's a human resource professional at the insurance company of Gregory & Appel. The episodes are located on the Business Learning Institute's self-study website, and they are mobile-friendly. Create an account from your computer and purchase an episode. Then you can listen to the episode on your mobile device on your daily commute or while you're working out, or you can even listen to it at your desk. When you're finished, take the review and final exam from your mobile device or on your computer. It's that easy. Now, while all selected Improv is No Joke podcasts are available on my website, only those purchased through the Business Learning Institute self-study website are eligible for CPE self-study credit. You can get detailed instructions by visiting my website at 
petermargaritas.com and clicking on the graphic, Listen, Learn, and Earn Improv is No Joke podcast on the homepage. I hope you enjoy this exciting and flexible new way of receiving CPE credit. And please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play so you won't miss an upcoming episode. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you take a few moments and leave a review on iTunes. Thank you very much for taking the time to do that. Now, November is National Diabetes Month, and I'll be donating 20% of all paperback and audiobook sales from my website to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Each paperback improv is no joke. Using improvisation to create positive results in leadership and life that is purchased from my website is personally signed. The book retails for $14.99 and the shipping's free. To order, go to petermargaritas.com and click the Available Now icon. In addition, you can download Improv is No Joke audiobook for $14.99 so you can listen on the go. And remember, 20% of all sales in the month of November will be donated to Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Now, I'm in the process of writing my next book with the working title of Financial Storytelling, and I'm previewing content on my social media. So connect with me on Facebook by searching The Accidental Accountant. On Twitter and Instagram, search P. Margaritas. And on LinkedIn, just search my name. Now, there are actually two Peter Margaritas's in the greater Columbus area, but only one is a CPA. In episode 77, my guest is Colin Blaylock, who's a shareholder with the accounting firm of Jones and Cobb in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, our conversation centers around why the audience focuses on your body language, then your words that you are saying to see if they are congruent. So remember to use the principles of improvisation to better connect with your colleagues, your peers, and your family. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.